I want to greet all of you again this morning in the exemplary name of Jesus. It's good to be together. It's good to be gathered in his name. It's good to be able to represent ourselves before God in that name. Title of the message this morning, Consider Him. Consider Him, uh, a phrase from Hebrews chapter 12. Um, a text this morning is in First Peter. We're in chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. But the Hebrew writer says this about Christ. For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. Want to continue following Peter's lead here. I hope it's his lead and the Spirit's lead and not mine. And that is this um, burden that Peter has for the church's first century Asia Minor, modern day Turkey that they would be patterning their lives after Christ and not recoiling from the suffering that they were called to. I uh, kind of amused on the way back from market last afternoon. I was thinking about the sermon and this uh, following Jesus, even when it costs, even when it hurts. Um, Saw a car a couple lanes over and kind of squinted and I have to admit I changed lanes to get a little closer and squinted a little more and I could I could read the word Jesus clearly on this bumper sticker and I'm just nosy enough to know what are they, there's other words there they were tiny I had to pull up pretty close uh, close enough with a truck and trailer and heavy traffic to read it um, bumper sticker said are you following Jesus as closely as you're following me as soon as I got that red, it <laughs> let off the throttle a little back off. And I felt a little trapped. I mean, it was tiny little writing. But, uh, but that's Peter's question for us today. Are we following Jesus as closely as he would desire? I don't know if it ever occurred to Peter to squirm a little bit, to be calling God's people for 20 centuries now, all around the planet, to a lockstep following of Jesus, even into danger, even into sacrifice, even into uh, costly suffering, when he uh, was not always the ideal model of that. We read of Peter following Jesus afar off. Um, I asked you to turn to First Peter three. I, I actually, before we do that, wouldn't mind just glancing back at Psalm twenty-two, if you want to. Hold First Peter and look at Psalm 22. <clears throat> I had said that we had come to the uh, climax of the epistle of First Peter a few weeks ago. As you're turning there, I'm going to read read that section. It was in First Peter 2, verse 20, and a couple verses after that, where Peter said.
Uh, if you do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called. Christ suffered for us and left an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, as we go on through 1 Peter, it isn't like we've hit the climax and now we're, we're down in uh, lower ground and shallower water. We're still kind of on a plateau here, moving on thinking about suffering um, as following Christ. Psalm 22, David writes here, and I don't know, I actually don't know if he knew that he was written a, writing a messianic psalm. We would call this a messianic psalm. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever said that? I don't think we've said it in so many words. Have you ever thought it? I'm doing my best to serve God, to follow Jesus, to walk in his ways, and you feel alone, you feel unappreciated. Where is God? Things aren't going well. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I would say that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, but it's also a heart cry of David, and I think it's also a cry for all of us. I, I think we uh, miss something if we say, well, Psalm 22, that's prophecy. That's Jesus on the cross, just there, there, there. There's all the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus on the cross. Well, it's also a peek inside the heart of David in his difficulties and suffering. And I think David would have expected that it was also an exhortation for God's people in their suffering. If you look down the second half of the psalm in verse 22, it talks about our responsibility to glorify God and to be light in the world. It says in verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise thee. You that fear the Lord, praise him. Seed of Jacob, glorify him. Fear him. Verse 24. He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Well, that answers the cry of verse 1. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is, in verse 24, he's, he's not forsaken us in our suffering. He's not despised, he's not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So David goes on, he continues to say, I will praise the Lord. My praise, verse 25, will be of thee in the congregation. In verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. If I have this right, what David is saying is that his testimony the glory that he ascribes to the living God in verse 27 will reach to the ends of the world. They will turn to the Lord as a result of his testimony. Verse 28, the kingdom is the Lord's. He's the governor among the nations. Uh, verse 30, a seed, this would be the, the remnant, the pilgrim church, a seed will serve him, will be accounted to the Lord a generation. That's us. 60, 70 generations since Pentecost. We are still a generation accounted to the Lord. The last verse, they, we, shall come and declare God's righteousness to a people that shall be born. He hath done this. So that's all fine and um, good for David, glorifying God, testifying, pointing the nations, even the world, generations to come to the living God, but... Why was that testimony so powerful? Well, the first half of the psalm describes the affliction that David went through. 
And the power of his testimony was because in his affliction, in his pain, in his suffering, the God that subjected him to that was the same God that he pointed to and praised and glorified. Look at the suffering of David in the first half of the psalm. Verse 2, I cry in the daytime. Verse 6, I'm a worm and no man. Reproach of men, despised of people. Verse 7, they laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, where is the God? Verse 8, where is this God that he's trusting? Look at this worm, he's suffering. Verse 9, 10, 11, talks of the God that was there invisibly. David knows he wasn't alone. Verse 12, bulls are surrounding me, strong bulls. Verse 13, they gaped on me with their mouths. They're, they're shredding at him with their teeth as a ravening, roaring lion. Verse 14, poured out like water, bones out of joint. Heart is wax melted in my bowels. This is powerful imagery, and we, I think, need to look to the cross and consider Christ's sacrifice, but we also need to consider our own suffering because David is pointing to that. He goes on and says uh, in verse 15, my strength is dried up, my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. You've brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, dogs are around me. The assembly of the wicked is around me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can see every one of my bones. I'm just skin and bones. Everyone is staring at me. They part my garments. Verse 19, 20, deliver me. Verse 21, this is the testimony, the experience of David. Save me from the lion's mouth. You've heard me from the horns of the unicorns. This is a man familiar with suffering. And then he goes on to describe how he's going to testify and glorify God. And around the planet, for generations to come, people are going to come to God because of his testimony. I think David would agree that the power of his testimony was in that he was glorifying and praising God in the midst of his suffering. So should we. Um, had opportunity to teach First Peter for the second time at a Bible school, and we talked quite a bit about Isaiah 53. Uh, we spent some time looking at the word servant in Isaiah 53. Then we went to the old book of Isaiah and looked at the word servant, and we found it more than 44 times. And it was my servant Jacob, uh, my servant Israel, my chosen, my elect, my precious Servant, 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 servant. And then somehow we get to Isaiah 53 and we say, well, that's the suffering servant. That's a, that's a messianic prophecy. That's Christ. No, that is still the servant that it is the other 43 times in Isaiah. And that is the servant of the living God, the people of the living God. Um, I'm not saying Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy of Christ. It obviously is, but it's more than that. It's part of the example that we're to follow, and that is that his stripes healed us, and our stripes are for the healing of the nations, if I can say it that way. So, let's turn back to First Peter. Um, I want to try to do just a tiny bit of review and 
tie together some things we've covered and some things that are coming and see how that works. Um, in 1 Peter 2 and second half of verse 20, you do well, you suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. We've covered that. We're reminded that if we do well and suffer for it and don't take it patiently, that's not acceptable with God. It's kind of the backhand of that verse. In verse 21, even here in 2, where you called, this is what we were saved for. You know, if someone came to me, I've had a few different careers and a wide range of responsibilities in 59 years. If someone focused my life down to a certain statement and said, this is what you were born for. This is what you're called to. This is why you exist. This is why you came to Christ. This is your purpose. That would get my attention. Whatever comes next, that's pretty important. I want to hear this. Or we're told, even here unto where you called, suffer, take it patiently. That's our calling. We have Christ's example. We follow in his steps. All right, we uh, had a couple of messages on the first seven verses of chapter three. We're talking about relationships that make this practical. We're to suffer, we're to follow Christ in suffering and be like David, pointing to God as we suffer, glorifying God. We had the relationship of the government. We take grief from the government. We submit. They're not always worthy of it. Often they're not. We submit at cost to ourselves, glorifying God. We considered the workplace and the woes we experience working for maybe unworthy, uh, froward supervisor. We submit. We suffer for it. We pattern our lives after Christ by doing it. And like David, we point to God. We glorify God in the midst of it. We uh, talked about in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, spouse strife, uh, things broken in a spousal relationship, disobedience. We say, oh, that's supposed to be Christ in the church. And you break the type, uh, disobedient husband or disobedient wife. She won't submit. He won't love her. There isn't respect. The type's broken. Uh, forget it. Move on. Failed representation of Christ in the church. That's not the case. We're called to persevere. We're called to submit in spite of spousal unworthiness, at cost to ourselves, still glorifying God by doing it. Uh, we came to the last of the four relationships Peter uses to demonstrate how you should think, how Christ thought. And that was in a brotherhood context. Let's, uh, that passage was the last message. I just want to uh, move through that. Spend a little bit of time on verse 8 through 15, the fourth relationship. This is not just the be-all and end-all. It's these four relationships. If you submit, you have it covered. That's sanctified suffering. These are typical. These are illustrations. This is how we think. And we discussed a few different types of relationships where we're called to submit to unworthy authority at cost to ourselves and glorify God through it. Let's start in verse 8. We spent a little time talking about the word finally as, as the word tell us. It really shouldn't say finally. It shouldn't say lastly. It should say above all or it should say of utmost importance, this, this final relationship, if you're going to pick one to not muck up, this is the one, if I can say that. I think I can say that. I'm going to let that stand. 
That is, this relationship is telos. It's uttermost importance, utmost importance. It's above all. Finally, being of one mind, compassion, love as brethren, pitiful, courteous. It went on in verse 9 to say, be of one, uh, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. That is, we talked about division and hostility, invading the brotherhood, and our response to the invasion is not to ignore it, certainly not to retaliate, returning evil or railing for evil and railing. We don't retaliate. We don't ignore it and let it run off our back. We return blessing. The same way you fight a fire. Uh, I suppose there's some argument for fighting fire with fire, but not in the brotherhood. Uh, we fight fire with the the anti-type, the opposite of fire is water. You put the fire out with water, you put the evil or the railing out with blessing, and you preserve the testimony of brotherhood. Not rendering evil for evil, contrarywise blessing, knowing that, and this phrase here comes up again, ye are there and called. I said, when someone tells you this is your purpose for existing, right here, okay, let's grab a hold of that. Well, this is the second time we've had that because we had it in verse chapter 2 and verse yeah, verse 21. Even hereunto were you called. And now we have it again in chapter 3 and verse 9. Ye are thereunto called. It's the same Greek phrase. Here it is again. You're called to return blessing for evil. It's your purpose. It's why you're here in the brotherhood. Ultimately, is to put out fires. Put out fires with blessing for evil. And there's a condition seems attached here. The word that is a purpose word. It should grab our attention. Why are we called to this? Why are we fighting fire with water instead of fire with fire? That we would inherit a blessing. You think of our eternal inheritance as a blessing, which it is. It appears here that it's tied to our willingness to lay down our rights, to lay down what justice would seem to demand, to lay down retaliation. I have every right. Someone slaps me on the cheek to slap them on the cheek. Yet we turn the other cheek with the purpose, verse 9, that you should inherit a blessing. The blessing seems to be tied somehow to that willingness to fight Fire with water at cost to yourself. That you should inherit a blessing. I used the phrase as a sermon for the last message that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 4, where he described the, the apostles' experience. He said, being reviled, we bless. Returning blessing for reviling. Uh, another way to Remember this, if it's helpful to you, I can remember things that, okay, it's kind of dumb, but this is just kind of how I am. When things have the same first letter, it's helpful to me. You might have noticed it. Uh, if it doesn't help you, then, well, I don't know, it's not going to hurt you. And that is that the, the reviling, the railing, the reproach, the evil that's being talked about is evil speaking. What we're called to return is blessing. I got my board here, I might as well use it. The blessing that we're called to return you might recognize when you put these two Greek words together, we have an English word, eulogy, 
eulogy, it's good. Speaking. You've heard it said, don't speak ill of the dead. It really isn't fair to speak ill of the dead. They're not there to defend themselves. So when we have a eulogy, I've never heard a eulogy that was anything but good speaking. Some people, it might be a little hard to find good things to speak about, but we find something because it's a eulogy and we want to speak well. And this is what we're called to. We're, to return this blessing, the word blessing is you, Logeo, and it's good speaking. So we have the evil, we have the reviling, the railing, the reproach, the evil speaking, we return good speaking. Evil speaking is, is what the word blasphemy is at the end of the day. We think of blasphemy as something that's directed to God, but it's you can blaspheme uh, a bowl of mashed potatoes if you speak poorly of it. Uh, evil speaking about the bowl of mashed potatoes is these are dry, these are grainy, these need more butter, uh, they're cold. Uh, I don't know. Shame on us if somebody labors to feed us and we blaspheme the food, but you can blaspheme a bowl of potatoes when you speak evil of it. Reading some faces here, not believing me, but the word can be applied more broadly than blaspheming the living God. Or um, So the idea is we want to return blessing for blasphemy. That is good speaking for evil speaking. And what is our calling? Why are we here? What is our blessing that we want to inherit tied to? It seems to be tied to us being known as a people. We're non-conforming, and bless God for that. Two kingdoms, we don't have the flat Bible. We are non-resistant, and uh, we're known for the head covering. I'm, I'm here to bless all of that, and I'm, I'm, I've profited from that. I'm thankful for it. It's scriptural. But if we go to 1 Corinthians 11 or we go to Matthew 5, we have these calls to be non-resistant or the head covering or... Uh, non-conformity, we don't find in those passages, this is your calling. And if you want to inherit a blessing, this is how you will live. It almost seems as though this returning blessing for blasphemy is is elevated. Um, you can do what you want with that, but I, I will say there does seem to be a condition attached. And for myself, I've been struck by the fact that I don't find it natural. I have... Occasionally experienced what I would have said was, I don't want to say, it sounds kind of weird to say blasphemy, but evil speaking or, or unpleasantness, uh, division, hostility, whether in the brotherhood or out of the brotherhood. My natural response is not, oh, what, what can I do to bless this person? I felt like non-resistance would call me to, to just kind of tense and seething on the inside and it goes off me like water off a duck's back, and I don't strike back, and I don't even say anything, but my cheeks are flushed, and my heart's racing, and I'm not thinking anything blessed about that, say that other person, and all I can say is shame on me for those times, and that's something I want to grow in. I, I don't think that I'm necessarily the only one that needs to grow in that. Maybe not. Um, seems to be a very important characteristic of God's people that their natural response to being blasphemed, railing, reproach, revile, is what can I do to bless this person? And not like burning coals on his head, 
I like to see him suffer. I can, uh, I can give him good to see him suffer. It's, what can I do to bless this person? It's important. Answering blaspheming with blessing. All right, we're working our way through verse 9. We come to verse 10 to 12. This is plucked right out of Psalm 34. We should go there. That would be a a good use of time. But David's message in verse 10 uh, in Psalm 34 is Peter's message here in uh, verse 10 to 12. That is this blessing that we want to inherit, this, this good days, this love life of verse 10 requires we refrain our tongue from evil. And then verse 11 is asking for more than silence. It says we're to eschew evil and do good. Eschew evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. All right. We should mention from verse 10 that there is a veiled warning there. This Life that can be loved in verse 10, these good days seem to be conditional on not being the source of the evil or not responding to evil. We want to be careful that we're on the right side of that. We move on to verse 11 and we have eschew and ensue. They're actually opposites, but they're kind of awkward words. I I don't really understand how they got there other than they're left over from 1611 where people would say, I came on an angry bear, and he was snarling and snapping. I thought he was going to eat me, so I eschewed him. It just means run away. It doesn't mean that we don't participate in the evil. It means that we run away from it. And then ensue, the word behind that is it's translated often as persecute or pursue. That is, we run towards Persecutors are the people that are chasing after you all the time, literally. So we see we're called to eschew evil, treat evil like a snarling, snapping, angry bear that we run away from. And the good, the blessing that we're to return, the peace that will come from that in verse 11, is something we ensue, we pursue, we persecute. We're always after it. But that person is always making peace. He's always trying to take a a striving, uh, hostile situation, and turn it into a blessing. And it costs him. It seems to cost him every time. He's willing to give of his treasure. He's willing to give of his reputation. Uh, People think he's just a worm and not a man. A man would stand up for his rights. The command is to run away from evil and run after peace. Pursue it. Persecute it. Verse 12. We want to notice here that we don't just shoot through here and think, well, that sounds a lot like Psalm 34 and that's nice Bible words. There's a stern warning here. We can't overestimate the cost of division and hostility in this brotherhood, in this telos, above all, utmost of most important relationships. Division and hostility, well, that's just how it is. It's always going to be that way. What can I do? Well, you can do something. You can ensue. You can pursue. You can persecute peace. 
You can return blessing for blasphemy. You can redeem the situation. But there's a lot at stake here. So verse 12 is describing the difference between heaven and earth, at least. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. So who are the righteous? The righteous eschew evil. They ensue peace. They return blessing for blasphemy. These are the righteous. You say, well, okay, those are the righteous. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So you have eyes of the Lord over you, ears open to you. You are blessed. You are a child of God. You are under his protection and blessing on the one side. But on the other side, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I said the difference is heaven and earth. It's actually heaven and hell. So where do we find ourselves? The eyes of the Lord are over us. His ears are open to our prayers. Or the face of the Lord is against us. It comes down to us not being numbered of those that do evil. I, I felt convicted of the fact that doing evil, we can usually think, well, I can think of some evil, wicked things, and, and I, I'm not doing that. But I think that what Peter is describing here is that evil is not doing what we're asked to do. I think that when we don't eschew evil and pursue peace, when we don't return blessing for blasphemy, we end up tangled up in verse 12, which is the face of the Lord against us, because we've discarded it. We've said, well, that isn't just. That isn't right. I'm owed. I'm owed retaliation. I bless you if I don't retaliate, but the blessing is to be beyond not retaliating. Doing evil in this context, I think, is not returning blessing for blasphemy. Again, whether it's in the Brotherhood or at the Lowe's parking lot or at the Wise or I don't know where, anywhere, anywhere where we come into conflict, division, hostility. Uh, Peter says here, Tell us, above all, of utmost importance, the brotherhood. But it's not limited to that. It's not limited to anything. If somebody has a pulse and you are in relation with them, I think we're bound by this responsibility to return blessing for blasphemy. I hope you're not getting tangled up on the blasphemy thing. I saw a bunch of scowls. Makes me uncomfortable, but I've already said it. I'm going to stick with it. If you want to use another term, go ahead. Uh, the term here that Peter uses, inspired, we could stick with that. Evil and railing. All right, so we're down to uh, verse 12. We talked about what's at stake. If we're willing to be satisfied to say hostilities and division, let's say in the brotherhood, it's just going to be that way. That person's wrongheaded and things are going to be wrong. Now. Not until you've returned blessing for reviling. Then you've done what you can and then you've pursued peace. And at some point it's on the other one's shoulders, but not until then. To move on. Time moves on. Verse 14. If you suffer for righteousness sake. So there's a but here in verse 14. I always am intrigued to look for the bad and the good because but always sticks between bad and good. So but 
suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. That's the good. So that's where our joy comes from, right? Can we all say amen to that? One sanctified brother. I'm not sure I can always just call out joy in the midst of suffering. But we know the right answer, don't we? But we know it because it's here. If you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. There it is. There's where true joy comes, is in suffering. So that's the good. What's the bad? We would have to back up to... um, The Lord is against them that do evil. So that's the bad. But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. That's the good. So we can do evil. We cannot return blessing for blasphemy. Or we can return blessing for blasphemy, suffer for righteousness sake, and go off rejoicing. At least Brother Leroy. Sometimes it's not that easy. Joy and suffering. Talked about this at Bible school. Um, it's in every chapter of First Peter, almost like he wanted to be sure we didn't miss it. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, joy and suffering. Um, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read to you from uh, chapter 1. You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Having not seen him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So here we are in the midst of heaviness and manifold trials, and we rejoice with joy that was beyond what Brother Leroy expressed, because he was able to express the joy that he feels in suffering, but this joy is unspeakable. So I would expect that joy to be to the level that when I say, can I get an amen, all I get is a stammering. I'm just so happy in this manifold temptations, this heaviness. It's beyond expression, my joy. I'm so happy. Uh, We could look at chapter 4. You can turn to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened. I think I said in my testimony last Sunday that what's strange is not having fiery trials. at The risk of repeating myself. That falls right out of this verse. If you are not experiencing fiery trials, you are in an unusual situation in your Christian life. Because fiery trials are not strange. Verse 13, but rejoice. Fiery trials. Rejoice. You are partaking in Christ's sufferings. That his, when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Uh, there's another condition there. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest on you as you are, as I am. Rejoicing in verse 13. Verse 13, I'm glad. Verse 13, I have exceeding joy. Verse 14, I'm happy. And in this condition, which I'll admit, I I strain. Um, I'm not going to say I haven't experienced it because I have. But it's not natural. It certainly takes the grace of God. But in that situation of joy, 
It says in verse 14, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And it's profitable to God. It goes on and says, on their, on your part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. All right. Back to joy and suffering. Um, Joy and suffering is not grimly enduring while seething on the inside. Peter isn't going to let this go. He, he's after it in every chapter. He's, he's not satisfied until we finally stagger away and realize the calling is not just to endure suffering. It's to see through it and to rejoice. Um, Romans 5, we, we glory in tribulation. Sounds like Paul's got the same message. So tribulation comes, we we grit our teeth and we just get through it. No, we glory in it. James 1, we count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials. It's all joy. It's more than joyful. It's the sum of all joy. I'm experiencing not just a trial, but how many have ever experienced suffering from multiple directions at the same time? I could pick some of you out because I know. Some of the difficult roads some of you have been called to walk. And I've seen suffering come from multiple directions. James says, count it all joy when you have diverse trials coming at you. All joy. 2 Corinthians 12. Would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, again, seems to be working with the same playbook that Peter is. There's something important about this joy and suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse. uh, Middle of verse 9. Can we pick up in the middle? After the red print in verse 9. If you have a red letter Bible. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. I thought about what it would look like if I got a note card. It would probably take a couple and started writing out my weaknesses and my failings, my failures, the things that I'm just painful, difficult in this life. I'm going to write them all down. I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, these are my glory. You all know some of those difficulties and failures. Wouldn't you rather just put them in a back pocket and hide them from the world and pretend they never happened? Paul says, I'm glad and I glory in my infirmities. Otherwise, the power of Christ is not resting on me. Before it was the spirit of God and spirit of glory resting on you. Now it's the power of Christ resting on you. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. That purpose statement that the power of Christ may rest on me. I don't know if you've ever experienced an honest question, where is the power of Christ? So, I have difficulties, I have infirmities, trials and tribulations, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm like David, where are you God? Why have you forsaken me? I'm suffering and you're not watching, you're not hearing, you don't care. Where is the power of Christ? Well, Paul seems to connect that to the gladness and the glory of the infirmities. Instead of taking that card full of infirmities and failings and weaknesses 
and things that hurt and things that I'm ashamed of. I put these in my back pocket and hide them from the world. These are our glory. Why? Because when we're weak, we're strong. Verse 10, therefore, I want the power of Christ to rest on me. Therefore, verse 10, I take pleasure. What brings you pleasure in life? I can make a list of that too. And none of my infirmities would be on that list. They just wouldn't, naturally speaking. But Paul challenges us here to put those infirmities on that list of what you enjoy. I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Joy and suffering. Paul, James, Peter, Christ, Matthew 5. I find it interesting. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. I find it terribly interesting that there's all this controversy about putting the Ten Commandments on the courthouse steps. I've heard it here in Mifflin Town. You've probably read about it. It just seems like people just terribly want the Ten Commandments. The law that's against us, we got to get that on the courthouse steps. What I've never heard anybody want to do is get the Beatitudes on the courthouse steps. Why is that? Well, they're costly. There's 10 of them. I mean, it would, if you can fit 10 commandments, you can fit 10 Beatitudes. But the attitude of Beatitude that these 10 Beatitudes give, the last four are kind of shocking. They're all costly. But the last four start in verse 9. So this is Beatitude 7, 8, 9, and 10. Anywhere it says blessed, four, that's a beatitude. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Put that on the courthouse steps. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are qualified to be called children of God. Not a peacemaker, not a child of God. That's Maybe that's too strong. That's how I read verse 9. Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom. We reject persecution. We recoil from it. Is the kingdom still ours? Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom. Verse 11. Blessed are ye. Happy are ye. When men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. It better not be true. If it's true, there's there's no blessing in being reviled and persecuted and evil said against you because you've done wrong. But if you've done it for Jesus' sake and it's those statements are false, you are blessed. I am blessed. Verse 12, rejoice, be glad, be beyond glad, exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted the prophets that were before you. Okay. See, it's time to wrap up. I'm going to close with, uh, we should have gone to Acts 5 where we have the description of the, uh, the apostles being beaten for not being willing to quit teaching in the name of Jesus. And and they walk away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Joy and suffering. Rejoicing because of the shame. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. uh, Chapter 3. So from the New Testament, that's five books back, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, 
Zechariah Malachi, um, Habakkuk 3. Kind of like a soul to get there, because as a farmer, this really resonates with me. I heard... Uh, I committed to not use names in my sermons. I heard a sister say, this was favorite passage or one of them. It's kind of shocking as a farmer. This passage describes a farmer that God has taken everything from. Everything, absolutely everything from. Habakkuk 3 verse 17. Here's this farmer, desolate, has nothing. Although the fig tree, I hear a lot of flipping. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Although the fig tree should not blossom, neither there be fruit in the vine. The labor of the olive shall fail, the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know, no farmer likes being destitute this man is going to lose his farm he's lost everything and he knows that at the end of the day ultimately God has created this situation but he turns to that God he rejoices in him he joys in the God of his salvation so this is where we're headed in the next message Um, beyond this idea that Jesus was called to the cross and so are we that Jesus was called through the cross beyond the cross to the glory to the glory set before him. Um, And Peter is going to spend the next half dozen or so verses talking about that the cross was not the end for Christ. It's not the end for us. But the cross is the only path to glory for Christ. And cross-bearing is the only path to glory for us, is what Peter will say. So I'll wrap up with verse 15 of 1 Peter 3, where he says, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a re- an answer to every man that asks the reason of the hope that's in you. I'm back to where I started. David said, I'm going to testify, and the whole world's going to hear it, and generations to come, 70 generations later, they'll be talking about my testimony for the living God. The power of that testimony was that he was a worm and not a man. He suffered unspeakably and glorified God in the midst of it. And so here, Peter says, Sanctify the Lord God, 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to every man that asks, a reason for the hope that's in you. I would say that to the extent we accomplish that, we are going to be being asked. When was the last time someone came up to you and asked you for a reason for the hope that's in you? Does it happen every day, all day long? It doesn't to me. Is it possible that the world reads in my response to suffering, if this God is so great and this salvation is so precious, why do the things of the world get you down? The power of the testimony comes from the willingness to be joy unspeakable in the midst of suffering. And I believe... I firmly believe that as we are living that, that we will find it a common experience that people say, what is it with this hope in you? How can this not get you down? I have seen that uh, many times in many of you, and I've learned from it. 
profited from it. It's a powerful testimony around the world, generations to come. Let's kneel for prayer.